Hello and welcome to the Friday, October 22, 2021 edition of On Iowa Politics. As former President Donald Trump has shown us, social media has become increasingly important for politicians at all levels to raise their profiles and communicate directly with voters. So I think it's good news that only one Iowan was among the 15 most active state legislators on Twitter and Facebook. And that's a liberal Democrat. Despite the example Trump set, there are only two Republicans among the top 15 on each platform, and that's the top 15 nationwide. So take that, President Twitter. Cedar Rapids Senator Rob Hogue was the top social media poster among Iowa legislators. Hogue has posted to Facebook 1,444 times this year. That's less than half as many times as uh, Florida Democratic Senator Linda Stewart's 33-36 Facebook posts. And there's little chance he'll catch Arizona Republican Senator David Livingston's 20,928 tweets. That's 89 per day. Hogue is the most prolific Iowa legislator on social media with 2,550 tweets. And with a total of 3,994 Twitter and Facebook posts, he's the Iowa legislator, social media champ. And while that is no Chuck Grassley, uh, who according to the Daily Iowa has tweeted more than 10,000 times, Hogue doesn't tweet about the History Channel, You Know What, or Dead Deer. His most frequent topics are COVID-19 and a prairie in his neighborhood that has been destroyed to make way for a Cargill rail car storage facility, or as Jody Mitchell saying, they paved Paradise, put up a parking lot. Hi, I'm James Lynch of the Cedar Rapids Gazette, and with me today are Amy Rivers of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, James. And I enjoy Chuck Grassley's tweets that he writes himself. I'll just put that out there. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> and Gazette Opinion Editor Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. This week, a uh, second look at redistricting and the UAW strike. You can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to On Iowa Politics wherever you find your podcasts. First up, redistricting part two. Iowa's nonpartisan legislative services agency delivered a second redistricting proposal this week after Senate Republicans rejected the first. The plan addressed Republicans' concerns about compactness and population deviations. It sounds kind of, I don't know, deviant in itself, population deviations. Uh, Democrats could say a plan two was better, but committed to voting for it. Republican leaders said they will do their due diligence. Todd, better than the first or should we hold out for a third plan well i don't you know i don't know if it's better it is you know a map drawn without regard to, to partisan politics which is you know the the hallmark of our system so uh it, it sounded like republicans were a little more optimistic about this one that they might you know consider passing it they didn't you know the last time you could tell that they weren't you know, crazy about it right away. But this time they were, you know, a little more, seemed a little more like maybe they they'd actually consider passing it. Um, I mean, the congressional districts look a lot better for Republicans than they did in the last map. I, I think all four of them went for President Trump and, you know, one of them pretty narrowly and, and one by only two points. So they're not completely uncompetitive, but they do look better. You don't have the the, the you know, First district isn't as democratic as it was in the first map when you joined, when it joined Lynn and Johnson County. That this map splits them up. It, it it basically splits up most of the urban counties into different districts. So, uh, if if the if the congressional districts were the reason that they didn't really like those maps last time, or the main reason, then I think that they probably like this this 
uh, the set better. I haven't seen, I haven't done any deep dive into how this affects legislative uh, districts, but it sounded like maybe there were fewer incumbents thrown together. Maybe, maybe that's a good thing too. Yeah, it looks like there are about 56 incumbent legislators, mostly Republicans, who are thrown into districts with other yeah. incumbents. Um, yeah, I, I haven't done the deep dive on the legislative districts, but just looking at um, comments that I've found, um, Chaz Nuttycomb, who bills himself as the leading state legislative election prognosticator uh, <laughs> and, and does deep dives on legislative redistricting, uh, said... Um, the new map uh, is very GOP friendly. Um, <clears throat> he even speculated that Republicans could achieve super majorities in both the House and the Senate with these maps. Uh, he said the first draft lines were brutal enough for Democrats. These are at a new level, um, which, you know, Democrats who said they were going to vote for this before they even saw it might want to rethink that. Although it, it probably, if Republicans yeah. like it, it's not going to make any difference. Yeah, right. Um, yep. Uh, yeah, so, um, Amy, it, it looks like uh, there are a couple um, Blackhawk County legislators who are paired, Timmy Brown Powers and Ross Smith. Smith is running for governor, um, so that probably won't create any problems there. Are you hearing cheers or boos or any reaction of, around the area? Yeah. So when Timmy Brown Powers heard about the first map, she she called me and let me know, you know, hey, you know, Roz and I look like we're thrown in the same district together. But she noted there'll probably be a lot of changes to come. So I think that she's, you know, not making any concrete plans at this point. And I would guess that Roz, um, you know, I, I haven't reached out to him quite yet, but I would guess that he's probably not going to be at least outwardly worried. Like you said, he's running for governor. He really hopes he'll get that and not have to worry about, you know, going against Timmy Brown Powers. But I think now that we're seeing both of them in the same district um, with another open district, then it probably will force some conversations um, whether somebody's ready to um, retire if, if you know, Roz isn't elected governor, for example, or if somebody's just ready to move. You know, that, that's very possible um, that they could make that happen. Um, since they're both in both maps, I think it wouldn't be a stretch to think that they will... Um, be in that third drawn map by Republicans as well, which if I'm a betting man and I'm not, I would say that the Republicans will probably get to a third map. Now, I know Aaron Murphy thinks there might be a chance um, that the second map goes through. Yeah. One of the theories that I've been hearing lately is that the Republicans will reject this map and reject the third map and then amend the third plan by picking whichever of the three they like the best. Um, now. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of software out there. They could already have the map drawn that they want. Um, it has to pass the same, you know, constitutional standards uh, as any of the maps the LSA draws. Um, but th that's one of the popular theories that I'm hearing lately. Um, looking at this map, there are some interesting potential races, uh, you know, in the sort of the Cedar Valley, Eastern Iowa area. Chad Ingalls, who's a freshman, and Sandy Salmon, who sort of anchors the right wing of the House Republican Caucus, um, would be in the same district, Fayette County and Bremer County. Um, and then there's an, a Senate matchup. Craig Johnson from Independence and Dan Zumba from Ryan are thrown into the same district uh, that covers Delaware and Buchanan County. So 
Um, I guess some folks are going to have to make decisions there. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know where those folks move that uh, doesn't put them in a district with a, another incumbent. So it, it gets tough as you go. Um, Todd, one of the sentiments we hear from both Democrats and Republicans that if Democrats are going to gerrymander in Illinois and other places where they can and Republican, so Republicans should do the same thing in Wisconsin and Iowa and other places they can. And I guess in politics, maybe that's what passes for logic. Yeah, well, I mean, we've got the history and we've held ourselves out as a model and uh, it's kind of become ingrained in our, you know, political culture in Iowa that we've got this great, you know, redistricting system that everybody ought to emulate. So, uh, I mean, it's it's tempting. It's 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 tougher here because of the the limits on how you can draw the maps, even if you amend it. I mean, it's not just a freewheeling, you know, you can't create a Senate district that runs two miles on either side of I eighty across the, <laughs> the state or anything like that. I mean, it's you have to you have to follow the rules even if you amend. So, uh, yeah, I I mean that's that's an interesting possibility that they take the third map and and then look at all three and see which one's the best for them. I guess that's possible. Although, you know, they've, they've, the deadline on December 1st is sort of coming up and it may be, you know, I get the sense from some legislators and leaders in their statements that maybe they just would like to get this over with and and move on to, to other stuff. But uh, you could be right. They might, they might try to amend it. They might have their perfect map. So, you know, stored in a, in a secure location that they can pop out. So <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Yes. It's, it's there's so much, specu- it's all speculation. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I mean, you know, it, that's part of the, part of the redistricting fun. Exactly. And I've talked to a couple of Democrats who suggest that uh, perhaps Republicans are delaying the, the decision as long as they can, because it, it hurts candidate recruitment which affects Democrats more than Republicans. Um, you know, folks don't want to say, yes, I'll run if they don't know what district they're in and who they might be, which incumbent they might be running against. So, um, you know, they said that Republicans will drag this out as long as possible. Um, one of the other interesting matchups that could occur under plan two would be in the Quad Cities area where Democratic Senator Jim Lycom would be uh, matched with Senator Robbie Smith who uh, led the GOP objections to plan one and was the floor manager of what Democrats call voter suppression bills uh, that were, have been approved by the GOP in recent sessions. So uh, that, that would be one to watch if, if this plan gets approved. Um, Aaron Murphy couldn't be here today, but did some calculations based on voter registration numbers. At the congressional level, the second plan would cause uh, far less chaos than the first plan. Um, which had big swings and would have made the new first district far more Democratic leaning and the second district far more Republican leaning. Uh, According to Aaron's calculations, the difference between the first and second plan, uh, the new first district would go from plus seven for Democrats to plus 0.2 for Republicans, second district plus five for the GOP to only 0.8 gain for the GOP. The third district would be unchanged with a 1.7 point uh, Democratic advantage. And uh, I feel like I'm giving the corn and bean markets here. Uh, Democrats Barrows uh, and gilts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the fourth district, uh, not surprisingly, would uh, uh, stay strongly Republican. 
Moving on, the strike continues uh, outside John Deere plants. More than 10,000 United Auto Worker members uh, around the country are on strike, many of them in Iowa. Now that more than a week into the strike, it's beginning to look like it may last a while. In its latest offer, Deere offered wage increases equal to about a 5 to 6% raise in hourly pay at the end of the six-year contract. That's according to employees. Deere has gone to court to limit where and how many strikers can be near the entrances to their plants. So the battle lines are being drawn. Naturally, it has attracted attention from politicians with Democrats voicing solidarity and Republicans essentially saying that the collective bargaining process should be honored. Um, so far, no one, n- none of them have choked saying that. Um, Amy Waterloo is on the front line of the picket line. In addition to the thousands of deer employees, the impact of the strike, especially a prolonged strike, will extend beyond uh, the employees. Uh, what's the mood there? It's still a good mood. You're still seeing strikers that are happy and workers are still fired up. They're still, you know, um, getting a lot of support um, from not only the general public, the driving public driving by the work sites, as well as a lot of businesses that have stepped up um, to provide, you know, discounts, free meals and and just like giving things to to help workers and, and that sort of thing. And the UAW is obviously, you know, still backing them with supplies um, from, you know, food to rent assistance, um, which if it's a prolonged strike, that's going to um, continue to be critical and and continue to really push on the UAW um, to to provide that as well as the community. Um, there's not, though, a lot of long term planning that I'm seeing. So even from like the city level, for example, um, you're not really seeing uh, them putting together any plans like, okay, what happens if this strike goes for two weeks? What happens if this strike goes for a month, two months? The last time there was a large strike in 1986, it went for 163 days. That's a really long time. And like the the level of, um, you know, financial hardship was very great. I think um, it would really behoove leaders to sort of put together a better plan than just sort of like, well, we hope that they negotiate and, and get it back together because it's not really a plan. And, and if it goes on into the winter, um, you could really see, especially with the economy we're in, with the worker shortage we're already in, um, with the hardships people are already facing, you could really see that become a, a big problem, especially here in Waterloo, which has a plurality of deer workers. Um, but right now, the mood is is still upbeat. And I think, um, you know, workers are excited and, and think that they have the upper hand. I did talk to Ashley Hinson um, today, and she did say, um, like you said, a lot of Republicans are just saying, well, we hope the negotiations are going well. Um, Republicans really aren't taking sides um, with UAW workers unless they're really specifically here um, locally. Um, we are seeing local Republicans um, stand up for UAW workers just because of the sheer number of UAW workers that they represent. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess hope lasts for the first week or two of the strike, and then it does seem like there needs to be a plan. I mean, if you're looking at a 100-day strike or 100, what did you say, 169 days, that's mm-hmm. that's going to be a real uh, impact on the community uh, where you have so many people who work at John Deere um, and, and it seems like they, they'll need a plan for that. You mentioned people are providing food and, and things like that. Are, do you see signs around town? I mean, like in business windows or in people's front yards and things like that? Some. Um, I think I think more of the signs you're seeing are, are in your Facebook 
posts and, and your, you know, social media, that sort of thing that, that will reach a wider audience than just the people um, driving by. But you are, you know, seeing um, UAW signs, you know, people will include them in their Facebook profile photos. Um, they'll, you know, make sure to, to mention them in their, in their posts and things like that. So you are at least seeing it in that. And of course, you know, social media matters more than the real world nowadays, James. Todd, uh, given recent trends in voting patterns, I would be curious whether this will have a political impact in 2022. I mean, if if working class voters have been trending Republican, will a strike like this make these UAW members more likely to get back in line with the Democratic Party? Well, you know, it's not I'm not sure. It kind of depends on how it plays out. I mean, if this if they come to an agreement, you know, fairly quickly within, you know, weeks or maybe a month then I think, you know, I don't know that it has that much impact. But if it goes longer and gets nastier and, uh, you know, as these things sometimes do, then, you know, yeah, there may be some rethinking depending on, you know, how political leaders react. And, I mean, eventually people are going to point out that a lot of these candidates have taken money from from John Deere PACs and, and other things. And so that that may become an argument down the road that, hey, you know, they say they want this to go well for you, but look, you know, this is whose side they've been on, you know, all this time. And so whose side are they on now? They need to pick sides. I mean, that will be the pressure. So, yeah, you know, anything like this, you know, a major, you know, labor unrest can have political implications, but it's, you know, it's, it's so early to, to tell if it gets done before, you know, the legislative session, then maybe, Maybe not, but if it spills into it, then we could we could see something. Sure, Amy, has this entered the the local uh, city election campaigns at all? Oh yes, um, it's it's well, it, by entered I mean it, it hasn't become divisive. Everyone is united in Waterloo. I mean, and in Blackhawk County, um, they passed a resolution, um, like a proclamation, just saying um, that was written by um, you know one of their big democratic uh, members that was just like corporate greed is is under this and we need to support our UAW workers and it's not a full democratic slate in Blackhawk County um there's definitely a republican on that panel who also agreed with the proclamation um and then all of the members of the Waterloo City Council um went on record you know they didn't have a specific proclamation but they went on record saying that they specifically fully support UAW workers. I mean, the political calculus changes when 3,100 of your constituents are specifically working under a union for John Deere. So that's, I mean, that's a giant percentage of your voter base. Um, They would probably be remiss to to not mention, you know, the UAW workers and their support. Well, and, and, you know, and, and conservative politicians have done well with the, with the working class voters, you know, on you know, a lot of issues like, you know, gun control and political correctness and the country is, you know, kind of a lot of social issues, sort of uh, those sort of issues. Economic issues, though, I mean, if this, if, you know, you can come back to, to the, you know, the democratic platform, which is basically, you know, collective bargaining, workers' rights, all of these things, if, if you know, an election becomes all about those kind of issues, then yeah, you could probably see some people who voted for Trump suddenly say, well, I don't, I'm not sure the GOP is, you know, representing my best interest now that my interest is, you know, economics, you know, my paycheck. 
And it might become harder for Republicans to continue to say, hey, let the collective bargaining process work if people start pointing out like, oh, yeah, it's okay for John Deere workers, but not for teachers or, mm. or correctional officers at the state penitentiary. Mm-hmm. No collective bargaining for them. Um, it, it's going to make it it'll make it easy for Democrats to score some political points there uh, mm-hmm. and put uh, Republicans on the defensive, I think. So, well, and De- whatever Deer, you know, Deer's conduct will make a big difference. I mean, yes, you know, this week, sort of this judge judge's ruling where they can only have so many people picketing and they can't have a burn barrel to stay mm-hmm. warm and they can't. I mean, some of this stuff is going to sour their mm-hmm. image publicly if they if they do too much of this nickel and dime stuff to sort of, you know, kind of make it tougher on these workers that are trying to pick it. So. Amy, what's it's been like 35 years or something since the last John Deere strike? And I guess one of the things that strikes me, uh, no pun intended, um, <laughs> but is that we haven't seen a lot of strikes in recent history. And when you talk to sort of old time labor leaders, they talk about, you know, what it takes to uh, carry on the strike. I mean, the, the you know, the, the support for one another, the, you know, finding food for the people who are on the picket lines, uh, support for the families, all these sorts of things that, you know, you think about a generation of workers who haven't ever gone through a strike. This is this is some mm-hmm. a new experience for them. Uh, you know, just walking the picket line is a new experience. And then when the paychecks stop and, and uh, you know, you're relying on strike benefits from the union, Things mm-hmm. get pretty dicey, so it's going to be interesting to see how they cope with that, uh, not having that experience and not, and not seeing that experience, even if they haven't seen it, experienced it firsthand, but they haven't seen it, you know, from uh, in other industries and other businesses. So it, it's really going to be a new experience for a lot of these UAW members, and, you know, it may present a real challenge. Yeah, you're right. I'm one of the city council members talked about that as well in the Waterloo City Council. She said she and her husband went through a strike in the 70s. That was their first strike and they had a small child. She was very worried all the time, just afraid and talked about that fear. And that was sort of her impetus to say, that's why I'm supporting you, um, because I know that fear. I remember that fear. And I think it's just going to be how long this goes on, if the community continues to support that, if they continue to feel supportive, they continue to feel like um, they can win. I think that'll be a really big psychological factor in, in how they're doing. Well, we've probably gone on long enough today. So uh, that's it for this edition of On Iowa Politics. If you enjoy the podcast, tell a friend and subscribe to us wherever you find your podcasts. Send fan mail to podcast at thegazette.com. And you can find us on the homepages of the Quad City Times, Sioux City Journal, Muscatine Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Item nine in the Mad Hatters will take us out. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be on our show, send us a sound file and subscribe to On Iowa Politics. For Todd, Amy, and our producer, Stephen, I'm James Lynch. Thanks for listening, and be well.